Hi, I'm Matt Dawson and welcome to OrthoScience Bites. Today I'm joined by Dr. Alan Kitchen. Dr. Kitchen has been an independent consultant in blood safety and infectious disease screening since leaving the National Health Service Blood and Transplant in 2017. Initially trained in transfusion science, he holds a PhD in virology from the Academic Department of Medicine, Royal Free Hospital, University of London, UK. He has worked in the English blood service for 40 years, over 30 of which were spent working directly in the field of transfusion microbiology. Previously head of microbiology at the Northeast Thames Regional Transfusion Center, he is currently secretary of the UK Standing Advisory Committee for Transfusion Transmitted Infections, a long-standing member of the World Health Organization Expert Advisory Panel for Transfusion Medicine, and a member of the newly formed WHO Blood Regulatory Availability and Safety Advisory Group. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kitchen. Thank you for asking me to speak. So to open up this conversation about uh, you know the use of blood and blood issues, what uh, would you describe as the current demand for blood and components for transfusion? And is there anything to remark or highlight as we're looking at this era of a pandemic and the impact that that may have had? Okay, I think there are two questions really here. The, the general background need for blood and components and then the issue of the uh, current coronavirus pandemic and what that's meant. So if I deal with the general need first, I think that's probably the most important. Um, if you look at WHO website, then uh, the estimates are around about 120 million units of blood are, are donated every year, that's, that's globally. But that itself is not sufficient to meet the estimated global need. Um, and the problem is that um, across, the, across the world, many patients who need a transfusion do not have timely access to safe blood. So it's a question of sufficiency as well as safety. Uh, and the problem is that blood can't be stored indefinitely, so there's a constant need for donations. And obviously, as you'd expect, there are huge gaps between low, middle and high income countries regarding donations, safety, sufficiency. And of the roughly 120 million donations every year, 40% of these are estimated to be collected in the high income countries, which, of course, are home to only 16% of the world's population. So you can see there is there is clearly an imbalance there. I think uh, as far as um, use of blood is concerned, one of the problems, of course, is that in the high income countries, it's more, it's, nothing's absolute, but it's more likely that blood and components are going to be used for chronic cases, whereas in the lower middle income countries, more likely to be used in acute cases. So uh, the, the lack of blood there can be quite critical. I think as far now moving on to the issue of um, the coronavirus pandemic and how that's affected. Well, it, it's it's probably I think the best thing here is to consider it as it raised important lessons about preparedness. So in itself, uh, and again, across the, across the world, you will have different responses. It's more of an issue of sufficiency rather than safety. And what I mean by that is that um, as far as we know, and there's no evidence to date, uh, respiratory viruses, and specifically SARS-CoV-2, not being transmitted through transfusion of blood or components. So the issue as far as blood services are concerned are, is that of sufficiency and by that I mean donors are not available because of lockdowns, because of illness, staff are not available. So um, it becomes, is there sufficient blood available? But of course, that's then balanced by the fact that in, and again, not all countries, but in some countries, non-urgent non healthcare, sorry, has been sort of switched off or, or tuned down so that in many countries, the demand for blood and components also dropped. 
So coronavirus is an interesting one. Has it impacted? It has impacted some countries quite significantly because of loss of blood. Tend to be more of the lower middle income countries where blood is needed for acute. Um, has it affected other countries? It's, it's very, very variable. But what it has done, it has raised that important point of thinking about such pandemics and how should blood services respond. That's a fantastic assessment and overview. So as we get then into the, the details of the processes and the steps, so can you provide a definition of a, a screening program performed by blood services? Okay, so let's keep it really simple. The screening program really is about ensuring safety. And there are two key elements to this, in my view anyway, that of uh, the safety of the donor and the safety of the donation. Two, two different things, very complex process, although on the face of it, it seems simple. Um, and it really is about um, deciding whether you want to accept the donor and you can um, screen a donor against a set of basically broadly defined, but quite consistent criteria. And then you have the laboratory side of things, the laboratory screening of the actual donations themselves for evidence of infection. And it really, again, looking in a very, very simplistic way, it comes down to two basic questions. Do I want to collect a donation from this donor? And if I do, can I then release this donation to inventory for use? So I think that really defines the screening program. There are some other sort of bits around the edges, but that really is what we're trying to do. Identify safe donors, and then from those donors, collect donations, screen them, and make sure they are safe to be able to release. So, you know, talking as well about that, about trying to determine is this a donor that's appropriate and, and are they safe? What does that process look like? So for someone who's a new donor, what does that process look like they would go through for that donor selection? So the aim of the donor selection process, and we'll push to one side all the bit about calling donors and everything, but when the donor gets to the point of a new donor comes in and says, I want to donate, then the aim of the donor selection process is to determine whether you consider that donor to be safe and you can collect a donation from that individual. So to do that, then you're looking for what we consider identifiable donor risks. Now, you know, we can discuss this forever. What is a risk? What isn't a risk? But the question really is, I said, do I want to collect a donation from this donor? And how do I know whether I do or I don't? And it is it is the very, very first step, really, in the process of ensuring the safety of the blood and components which are then made available to recipients. So the questions you have to ask, and there are, again, this sort of splits into two. The first part of the assessment really is, would donation actually have any adverse effect on a donor? So is the donor healthy enough to be able to donate? And I guess an example would be pregnancy. You don't really want to connect um, a donation from, from a woman who is pregnant because that could have an adverse effect on, on the infant, on the fetus. Uh, and there are some other conditions as well where people may want to donate, but actually donation may be harmful to them. So that's the sort of the first part of the selection process. The second part would be, um, if I collected a donation, would that donation actually contain anything that could harm recipients? So would it have any adverse effect on the recipients? And really, that means, does the donor have any diseases or conditions or any other risks which may increase the likelihood of there being an essentially an infectious risk? That's what we're really talking about. Um, so questions are asked about health, about lifestyle, general behaviours, travel, because obviously travel exposes people to, uh, certainly in terms of infectious diseases, 
uh, a range of infectious diseases which may not be endemic in the countries in which they live or reside, but they could be exposed to those through travel. And also behaviour of close contact. So it's quite a, a, quite a, a comprehensive uh, look at the risks associated with any one particular individual. But of course, uh, one of the issues here is the questions about uh, donor infection risk need to be based on both sort of general understanding of infectious agents. So you need to actually understand, if I'm asking questions about an infectious disease, what are the right questions to ask? What do I need to know, which will give me some indication of whether the donor is at risk or not? So you need to understand the basic biology of infectious agents. You need to understand transmission routes. But you also need to understand what the, uh, the levels of the infectious agent in the population. So you need to have a pretty good idea of the incidence and prevalence of those infectious agents. So once you've, you've done that, you've, you've got through a process and you try to identify um, the risks associated with that individual. But of course, nothing really stands still. So the donor selection process really has to be a very informed process. And I think it is probably quite important to say that over the last few years, um, blood services in, in various countries across the world have been reviewing the basis of the risk assessment in donor. And in many ways, moving towards what would be a more evidence-based approach. Because over the years where we've been looking at uh, what's happening, looking at risks in donors, looking at the incidence of infections in donors, then uh, some of the previously identified risks as they were considered, for example, acupuncture, tattoos and some medical procedures, don't necessarily carry the level of risk that was previously considered that they did. Uh, and there was very much a bit of a blanket approach in the past because it was really safety above all else. But understanding has changed and risk is now something which is becoming more of an assessed element than a simple blanket approach. The donor screening process is very straightforward in one sense, but it's quite complex in ensuring that you ask the right questions so that donors can answer honestly and then you can actually use the information given to assess whether you really want to collect a donation from that donor. That's great. And I think, you know, as you speak about it, it gets that fundamental question of balancing uh, the risk of the donor, the effectivity of the screening and the demand for blood and trying to, to find that center point where you're achieving a safe supply, but also, as you spoke about, enough supply to meet the needs. So, you know, really interesting. And I think, you know, I'll highlight too, I thought it's fascinating is most people often always think about the safety in terms of the blood supply safety, not thinking about how much of the screening is really for the safety of the donor and ensuring that that's a safe process first and foremost. So it really, really fascinating discussion. You know, I think the other interesting details you build on that is so there's often infectious disease screening that occurs then on that donation. Um, what types of tests are typically done and, and what kind of thought process goes into the, var the variations? Because we do see country to country, region to region, different tests and different uh, infectious diseases being screened for in that donor population. So when you get to the laboratory level, then again, uh, you know, it's straightforward to talk about in very, very simple concepts, screening the donations for a range of infectious diseases. But again, it becomes slightly complex in working out what do I do? When do I do it? How do I do it? What do I do with the results even? So I think the important thing about the laboratory side of things is that although the donor selection part is the first part, the laboratory screening is the buck stops here. Um, that's the final decision point at which, uh, in most cases, a donation uh, is decided 
uh, whether to release it or not. So there are a number of factors. Um, which infectious agents are screened for is probably the starting point. Well, every blood service has its own um, set of rules, regulations, uh, requirements, often national legislation. Um, but there is generally an accepted sort of, if you like, minimum set um, which is supported by WHO guidance, and the minimum set of infectious agents for which donated blood should be screened would be hepatitis B virus, hepatitis C virus, HIV and syphilis. Now, it, some people may argue that, and uh, there are all kinds of different views, but that's the WHO guidance on really what any country should be looking at as a basic set. Now, many countries do a lot more than this, um, depending, of course, on what infectious agents are prevalent. Also, a lot of countries are affected very much by, by regulation, um, not just their own national regulation, but sometimes regional regulation. So a number of factors. Of course, there are other infectious agents which are screened for because of specific risks in the donors. So, for example, travel um, gives you all kinds of risks, as I said before. Um, and in some cases, countries may need to screen, for example, malaria. If they've got, it's a non-endemic country and they've got a lot of people who visit endemic countries, West Nile virus. So there are a whole raft of other infectious agents which may or may not need to be screened for. But of course, the choice here is if you don't screen a donation for that infectious agent, but you can identify donors who are at risk, then the other option is to defer. So you have a choice, defer donors who have a risk or screen. And again, that comes down to individual countries, how they want to do that. But of course, if you don't screen and you have a particularly a large problem or an increasing problem, then deferral just means you start to lose donors. So it needs to be thought about which way you're going to go, deferral or laboratory screening. So laboratory screening is quite robust and can be effective. But again, it needs to be well planned and well thought about and using a, a perfectly acceptable algorithms to ensure that uh, the results are handled correctly. So whatever infectious agents you know, the laboratory is going to screen for, the important thing then is to decide for each infectious agent, what is the appropriate screening target or even targets? And these have to be identified. And again, understanding the biology of the infectious agent and the interaction between the infectious agent and the human is important. And in broadly, the targets will fall into two groups, serological targets, i.e. antigens or antibodies, and molecular targets looking for the genetic material of the infectious agent. Now, in some cases, for some infectious agents, it may well be it's a combination of serology and molecular. In other cases, it may be a serological target and sometimes maybe more than one serological target for the same infectious agent. In other cases, it may be purely a molecular target. Every infectious agent would have its own specific appropriate and the most sensitive target to ensure that as, as much as you possibly can, you can detect all donations which, which contain an infectious threat. But I would say, of course, there is no such thing as zero risk. Everything is done is done to minimise risk. And the evidence is that you know, transfusion these days is a, is a very safe uh, procedure in most countries. But there really is no such thing as zero risk. So the laboratory does the best it can to ensure that the screening is as sensitive and as specific as possible. Fabulous. So to to end up the conversation then, you know, as a high level, what would you say as your perspective of the role of the screening lab in contributing to safety, both in terms, as you said, of that screening, but also ensuring the sufficiency that those donations are not wasted? So I, because, because the laboratory is the final decision point, 
Uh, it, it really is important that the results coming out of the laboratory are as accurate, reliable as possible. Um, you really have two choices, keeping it, again, very, very simple. Either you just, the laboratory decides that the donation is safe to release to infantry or it's discarded as unsuitable. Um, so that's the choice point. The, 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 the trick really is how do you get to that point? So setting the decision point is really determined by the sensitivity and specificity of the assay and the expectations in terms of the, the level of infection in the population and how sensitive the overall screening program is. Um, and reaching the decision point itself is determined by the algorithm used. Now, I think uh, looking at algorithms, it's really quite important that um, blood services use appropriate algorithms which maintain sensitivity, but certainly do address issues over specificity. So to sort of put that very, very simply, any donation that is negative in all of the screening tests performed should be considered suitable for released infantry for clinical use. So that's that's really the easy one. And the truth is, in most cases, you know, 99% of donations are screen negative um, and can be issued for clinical use. Um, obviously, to ensure the maximum sensitivity, the laboratory should be using the most sensitive assays. But how you define sensitivity can vary significantly. But in, in broad terms, it's choosing the most sensitive assays in that particular context, that's the most important thing. Um, the other side of it, any donation that's reactive in any of the screening tests would possibly be discarded, but ideally on the basis of repeat screening. So although an approach, an algorithm is to simply do a screening test, um, get a result and then act on that result, that is quite wasteful because you know, as we know, assays do have levels of specificity and sensitivity. And although we're looking for high sensitivity, there is still a balance at times. And if you push the sensitivity too much, there is always the risk of losing specificity. So it's that balance point again between uh, absolute safety and sufficiency. And it really is just a question of finding where that everybody sits very comfortably. So, but as far as the laboratory is concerned, what the laboratory can do, of course, is to have algorithms which acknowledge that and say, okay, I've got a screen reactive, but what I'm not going to do, I'm not going to act on that straight away. What I'm going to do, I'm going to repeat that first. So by having an algorithm which requires a repeat, normally in duplicate, it then gives you more information. Um, in some laboratories, there is a high level of initial reactives, but on repeat screening, they're flat negative. So there would be no reason all else being equal where those donations couldn't be used. But of course, if you've got a sample or a donation which is screen reactive and then reactive again on repeat, then that comes the point of saying, OK, I can't use this donation. But then that leaves the laboratory or should leave the laboratory with another question is, well, we know we, the status of the donation. We can't really use it. But actually, we need to understand the status of the donor. Because if we don't do anything about that, and if we don't think about the donor, then there's two things. First of all, that donor may actually truly be infected and may require and benefit from clinical intervention. So there is a, an important a responsibility here to the donor at the back end. You know, we've cleared the donor at the front end, but actually there was some risk which we didn't identify. And there are lots of reasons why that could be the case. But we've got to then decide, is this donor truly infected because we could do something and help them, um, refer them for intervention? Or if they're not truly infected, actually, can we still carry on using this donor? Now, again, different blood services have very different views on this. But one of the important things is just to bear in mind, specificity is very important in deciding or determining the sufficiency of the blood supply. 
If you've got assays which are very, very sensitive, will pick up all infected individuals, but lack specificity, then there is a serious concern that it will start to erode the donor base. So managing a donor base is, again, I think a very important part of laboratory activities. It may not be something which is sort of recognized uh, and sort of face on, but it is really important that specificity is considered so that the laboratory is able to say, okay, we can't use the donation, but actually look, we've, we've investigated further or we sent the sample for confirmation and actually the donor isn't infected. So let's actually consider, can we use that donor? Is it just non-specific reactivity? And that reactivity may be transient. So there is no need and it would be very wasteful to lose a donor just because of transient reactivity. Actually, we could actually should manage it, monitor and bring that donor back as soon as possible. So I think really it's important that the laboratory has a very important function. It is the buck stops with the laboratory. But actually, it also the buck stops with the laboratory in terms of trying to manage the donors and trying to not only ensure the safety of the blood supply through the donation screening, but also sufficiency by trying to then manage those donors who give uh, reactive results, whether they be non-specific reactivity or specific and the donor actually truly is infected. Great. So um, I really want to just thank you again for, for taking the time with us today and giving us your experiences and insights into the the importance of the donation programs and the labs, especially in these challenging times. So, uh, Dr. Kitchen, again, thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. So, I hope you all enjoyed this podcast episode about the donation screening programs and the delivery of safe products for transfusion. Make sure to review sections within the podcast description for any reading materials that we've suggested. So, based on today's podcast, I'll leave you with our pop quiz, for those thinking of donating blood products, what is that process for donor selection looking like? And you can always go back and listen again. So again, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Ortho Science Bites, our monthly podcast, where there'll be discussions on more complex questions we face every day in our labs. Brought to you by Ortho Clinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 80 years, because every test is a life. Take care, stay healthy, and safe. <laughs>